everyone. This is Erica and Yvette, and this is the Melanin Pearls podcast, episode 30. Sure enough. <laughs> Happy Black History Month, everyone. Well, we're black every day. We celebrate every day, but we will, we will, we will make it a highlight for the whole month of February. Absolutely. So for those who may not know, the celebration of Black History Month began as Negro History Week in mm. 1926 by Carter G. Woodson. Mr. Woodson was an African-American historian, scholar, educator, and publisher. It became a month-long celebration in 1976. But as Yvette just mentioned, to us, we celebrate our contributions every day because every we day. are magic. That's so all I got to say about that. More than magic. More than <laughs> okay. So for this episode, <laughs> Yvette and I will be highlighting African-American leaders then and now. And I'm so excited for this episode because I believe it's important for us to know those who've paved the way and those who are currently making moves and benefiting society as a whole. I just want to say, I just love us. So mm -hmm. before we get started, if you're okay. motivated by the people we're highlighting, please continue to research and actually go and research other people. It's sure. important for us to know where we come from to help us know where we're going. Mm -hmm. So, all right, let's jump in. So Yvette, let's talk about your first then and now. Go. Okay. All right. So, um, I am super excited to share about my first black leader from back in the day, not so far back in the day, but um, the person that I want to share with everybody that I did a little research about, and literally she is my spirit animal. Her name is Edmonia Lewis. Um, she rewrote basically the 19th century definition of what it means to be a sculptor. She was a uh, prominently displayed as a Google Doodle, and she is on a U.S. stamp. So look her up in your post office near you. So a little bit about Edmonia. Um, her father was black and her mother was Native American, and both of her parents died when she's relatively young, and she was reared or raised by her Native American maternal aunts in upstate New York. You know where this is going. She's a New Yorker, so you know she's a little, oh, anyway, okay, anyway. So from what I read and the, some of the extended research that I've done, I believe her family kind of knew that she was going to be that and then some. Um, and she wasn't going to be the type of person that she was going to allow anyone to put her in the box. And they kind of saw her vibration, her vibrance, right, and her vivaciousness, which led me to believe why they adorned her with this name, a nickname called Wildfire. So. She had a half-brother who um, traveled the West and during the gold rush, and he earned enough money to finance her education. So it was a rare opportunity for a Black woman to go to college in the 19th century. So she was welcomed at this progressive, and I'm doing air quotes, you all can't see me, college called Oberlin College in, in 1859. But true to form, her time there was not super easy. So in the winter of 1862, a white mob had attacked her because of reports, again, air quotes, reports that she had poisoned two fellow Oberlin College students, drugging their wine with something called the Spanish fly. They beat her up um, pretty bad. And while she was still struggling to recover from her serious in injuries, she went to court and won an acquittal. 
Um, however, even after being cleared of all the poisoning charges, she was still unable to finish her last term because then they trumped up allegations that she had stolen paint and paintbrushes and a picture frame. So despite the dismissal of the theft charges, as well as the acquittal, the college asked her to leave. So she wasn't able to complete um, her education and receive a degree. All right, so fast forward, she moves to Boston with, again, more assistance from her half-brother. And there she met a lot of abolitionists. One of them was William Lloyd Garrison, who really supported her work. So her first success as an artist came from the sale of medallions she made of clay and plaster. These sculpted portraits featured images of renowned abolitionists, including Garrison, John Brown and Wendell Phillips, and all advocates for Native Americans. But her first real financial success came in 1864 when she created a bust of the Civil War Colonel Robert Shaw. He was a white officer, but you know what's great about him? White officer who commanded the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, which was all black soldiers. He was killed at the yeah, he was killed at the Second Battle of Fort Wagner, um, where the troops that killed the that killed him basically they dumped all the bodies of Shaw and his troops in a mass grave. And I think you all remember the Denzel Washington movie. You also remember where uh uh North and South? I will actually post the link of the movie because I believe this is where this this is that leader. Was that um, Glory? Glory, yes, right? Yes, uh -huh, yes, yes, uh -huh. yes, yes, yes. So so anyway, his bust was sold um, and it sold well enough to finance her trip to move to York. OK, so from Boston, she hooked up and went to London, then to Paris and then Florence before deciding to live and work in Rome in 1866. Now, you all know I love me some Italy. So there was a reason why I picked Edmonia, because that's my girl. I, I love Rome. She loves Rome. I love Florence. I just love the whole whole continent of Italy. Anyway, anyway, anyway so anyway. So, all right, 1866, she ends up in Rome. And so there is a fellow American sculptor already there named Harriet Holmesmer, who took Lewis under her wing and tried to really help her succeed because sculptors at that time traditionally paid Roman stone crafters produce their works in marble, you know, and this led to some questions about whether true artists were the original sculptors of, or the stone crafters, but whatever. But anyway, Lewis couldn't afford them, right? So she had to chisel her own work, her own figures. So let's fast forward. While in Rome, she created something called the Death of Cleopatra. And this is her largest and most powerful work. All I will have the links on our site as well as our Facebook. When you see this piece of work, you will be like, mm, super, super talented. So anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain to you why. So Edmonia kind of poured more than four years of her life into the sculpture. At times, she ran low on money to complete the work. So she came back to the United States where she sold some smaller pieces to earn the cash that's necessary. But in 1876, she shipped the almost 3,000 pound sculpture to Philly, Philadelphia, so that the piece could be considered by the committee selecting works for the Centennial Exhibition. She went there as well. And she was scared that the judges wouldn't accept her work. They were rejected. But to her relief, they did. They accepted it. The panel placed it, placed it in a gallery um, and called the Gallery K of the Memorial Hall um, set aside for American artists. So let me tell you about the sculpture, The Death of Cleopatra. So Lewis, she showed in this sculpture the legendary queen of Egypt on her throne. 
But the lifeless body with the head tilting back and the arms splaying open portrays the vivid realism uncharacteristic of the late 19th century. So some people called it a masterpiece. Others uh, kind of criticized it was too graphic or disturbing because Cleopatra, it was the image of Cleopatra killing herself. So the moment, while the moment of when the the asp, that was the, the snake, Poison did his job. It was just a little too graphic for folks. And some some didn't really care for it. But if you think about it, I think that Edmonia did that because she had Cleopatra determining her biography, not someone else. She committed suicide on the throne, sealing her own fate and having the last word on how she'd be recorded in history. And so I think that's how Edmonia wanted to be remembered herself. Just just maybe. So it's a shame that not a lot of people know about Edmonia, um, a woman who literally broke through every single obstacle in a male-dominated world. Her work shattered expectations about what female and Black artists should accomplish or could accomplish. And unlike her white sculptors, she could not ground her work in the study of anatomy. You know, so she took classes that were traditionally limited to only white men, but there are a few white women who helped pay get her the background in the subject so she could not afford the classes, but she was able to still, you know, engage in her craft um, and training with her peers that were trying to help her out. So many of her works didn't survive, um, but some of her pieces can be found at the Howard University Gallery of Art the Detroit Institute of Arts, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Baltimore Museum of Art. But her most significant work, The Death of Cleopatra, actually greets visitors who climb to the top floor of the um, Luce Foundation Center. So you all can go see it. I'll put the links out on our site. But not sure if y'all peeped it, I kind of mentioned in the beginning, but she was recently the subject of a Google Doodle um, that pictures her work um, working on the death of Cleopatra. Um, she was also featured in the New York Times in July of 2018 in one of its uh, articles or segments called The Over- Overlooked No More. It's a series of uh, obituaries written about women and, and people of color whose lives had been ignored by newspapers because of the cultural presidents that um, only revered white men. Um, I, I, I don't, I, ugh, she's, oh, 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 Erica, I, good people. Like when, like when we go back to Italy, we're gonna, we're going to her work. We're gonna go see it. So anyway, nice, very exciting, very exciting. Yes. So for my first then leader, I selected someone that I truly admire and am proud to cover. Her name was Dorothy Irene Height, and she was an African American civil rights and women's activist. She focused on the issues of African-American women, including unemployment, illiteracy, and voter awareness. She is credited as the first leader in the civil rights movement to recognize inequality for women and African-Americans as a problem that should be considered as a whole. She was the president of the National Council of Negro Women for over 30 years, which is just amazing in itself. She also served as national president of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated from 1947 to 1956. One thing about Ms. Height that I truly, I mean, I was just taken away, blown away from, she participated 
in the civil rights movement, not that part, but which is major, I'm not taking away from that, but she was considered a member of the big six. So which this was a group that included Martin Luther King, John Lewis, A. Philip Randolph and others. And in his autobiography, civil rights leader James Farmer noted that Height's role in the big six was frequently ignored by the press due to sexism. You know, we're talking about the 60s, right? So what woman would be really front and center during that time and receive the, the credit that's due for her being there, right? She was one of the few women present on the speaking platform during the 1963 March on Washington. And I took to look at the picture and I was like, oh my gosh, there she is. And that is truly, truly amazing. So fast forward a little bit. In 1990, Haidt, along with 15 other African-Americans, formed the African-American Women for Reproductive Freedom. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Bill Clinton in 1994. And her 90th birthday celebration in 2002 raised $5 million towards the National Council of Negro Women's Mortgage on their Washington, D.C. headquarters, which is named after her, the Dorothy I. Height Building. President Barack Obama said of Height that she was the godmother of the civil rights movement and also a hero to so many Americans. And I truly, truly, truly I'm proud of that for her. She That's died amazing. in 2010, isn't it? She died in 2010 and President Barack Obama de delivered her eulogy at her service at the Washington National Cathedral. So shortly after her death, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes and Mayor Vincent Gray renamed the historic postal office the Dorothy I. Height Post Office, and this honor made Height the only African-American woman to have a federal building in Washington, D.C. named after her. I just found her, I've always found her so interesting and compelling and so amazing. There's actually a stamp out there with Ms. Height's um, image on it. Um, so take a look next time you go to the post office. But I truly feel that she is a woman that, and I just, skim the surface. There is so much about her that I truly encourage that you go in and lean in and, and learn a little bit more about her. And we'll definitely have links to, um, uh, to her story so that you can get to know more about her. Yeah. That's, yeah. Ooh. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah. Girl she, power, she, woman power, she, just power. She always wore hats, always. And I've, se I've seen her on several occasions and she always wore hats. And um, there was a musical stage play, If This Hat Could Talk, that was based on her memoirs. So nice. totally, totally amazing woman. So I encourage our listeners to go out there and find out a little bit more about Dorothy Irene Height. Nice. So that's our first pass of the then. So let's talk about the now. So Yvette, let's go to you on the on your now leaders. On my now. Okay. Um, my now. I'm going to start with James Rucker. I don't know if you all know of James Rucker. Um, he is 
I would say sometimes he'll be controversial. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight him. Um, but anyway, so James Rucker, born um, and raised in Seaside, you know, in California, son of a high school guidance counselor and a school librarian. Um, he attended mostly white parochial and private schools. He went to Stanford, um, but he left his sophomore year to do a startup to create software for radio stations. Um, that, you know, what happens with, with innovation experimentation, things work, things doesn't work, pivot, okay, next step. Uh, so he went back to school, um, and he graduated, and then he worked for uh, several tech startups in the Bay Area. You know, so uh, technology is like tech geek, like myself, right? Um, but what you may all not know is that James Rucker is really not the man to mess with because um, he is a co-founder along with CNN Van Jones um, of an online activism resource called The Color of Change. And literally he mm -hmm. has helped to create the largest modern civil rights organization in the United States. The Color of Change has about 7 million members and it focuses on racial justice through social media, web-based engagement, as well as organi organization. Um, the group was founded after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, after Rutger, Rutger and um, Van Jones sent an email to about 1,200 people circulating a petition that demanded a more robust response from the federal go government um, to the damage caused by Hurricane Katrina. So Rucker later said that he believed that the response to Katrina by state and federal officials showed that, and I quote, those in power don't fear disappointing or neglecting or turning their back on black folks, end quote. So many of its campaigns have been very successful, including um, getting the bigoted right-wing commentators uh, Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly ousted from Fox News. Yes, folks. Van and James Rucker were behind the, those those movements, um, as well as he had PayPal and American Express. These two tech companies, he they applied pressure and got them to cut off payments um, uh, to white supremacist groups. We all didn't know that, right? Those are those that carry those Amex cards. I am one of those. I had no idea American Express was sending money to um white supremacist groups no longer. So some of his other groundbreaking uh, projects include uh, the Citizen Engagement Laboratory. It's an incubator for online organizing efforts. Um, there's a Latinx online um, activism platform. There's something called Oil Change US, formerly known as Forecast the Facts, and also as a also as Climate Truth. You know, it's a climate justice-based organization. There's a lot of things about gender equality organizations as well. Um, he is literally a, a veteran in the online engagement space. He originally served as a director of the grassroots mobilization effort called, wait for it, move on or. <laughs> yes. Yep. 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 Um, so he became the first director um, of moveon.org, the political action committee um, that jointly operates moveon.org and the move on civic action organization. While at moveon.org, um, he led projects uh, trying to pressure the 2004 re-election campaign of George Bush to not engage in what he called, and I quote, racist, undemocratic efforts to ensure security of voters, um, which he alleged that uh, there are wide 
widespread suppressing of minority voters turnout like throughout. So he also helped to develop television ads that encourage minority and youth voter turnout in the 2004 presidential election. So um, since May of last year, he sits on the boards of Color of Change, MoveOn.org. There's something called the 5050 Climate Majority Project, as well as the Southern Poverty Law Center Action Fund, which is also another um, political action committee associated with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, he was a board member of the New Organizing Institute, which before it disbanded. Um, and he's currently the board chair of the Leadership Conference Education Fund um, and a coalition of a whole bunch of civil rights groups. So you all peep it. Jay Rucker, <laughs> don't play with him because he That's will hurt y'all, hurt your feelings. I, I mean, he no joke. Like you know, he'll quickly get a, you know, thousands of people a petition, and you'd be on the cover of some type of TV show. You don't absolutely. And I have signed up for many of the move on um, petitions and such, and have looked into color of change, and and so important and so needed, right? Because I think, yep. you know, I know for years, you know conversation has been around, well, who's going to take that helm? And there are so many activists out there today that are pushing change uh, that it's it's very, very encouraging to see that um, that people like, like him are, are there along with others to make sure that, you know, we all look at the human race and not just necessarily just my race as a Black person, so to speak. So that's fab. All right. E, you are up. Who is your who is your black leader of today? So I don't know if many of you know her name, but we are benefits of her good works. And her name is Dr. Kizmekia Corbett. Have you heard of her? Yvette? I don't think so. It's, uh, is she um, like an um, uh, African um, scientist? She is. So she oh, is a me, viral. I think, I think, yeah. Yes, I do she, know her. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, <laughs> she's a viral immunologist and research fellow in vaccine in the re, vaccine research research center. Excuse me, of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. She's an assistant professor of immunology and infectious diseases at the Harvard T. H. Chan School of Public Health and the Schutzer Assistant Professor at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute since June 2021. So she is the lead scientist on the team that developed the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. She built on her six years of experience studying the spike proteins of other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS in order to design the vaccine within two days of the novel coronavirus being discovered. I just want to pause there for a second because this is something that benefits all of us. And just the fact that it's an African-American woman at the helm of that just makes me like say, Wah! it's just amazing, right? My whole, my whole thing is like, y'all better stop and recognize and mm -hmm. genuflect when you see her walk by, literally, because she's saving lives. Exactly. Uh, mm. Okay, I'm exactly. gonna stop. Exactly, exactly. So at a December event hosted by the National Urban League, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and we all know who he is, had one very important thing to say about the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. And what he said was, the first thing you might want to say 
to my African-American brothers and sisters is that the vaccine that you're going to be taken was developed by an African-American woman. And that's just a fact. So I just want to pause there for a second because that's major, right? That Mm -hmm. is totally, totally major. And she, in February, 2021, she was highlighted in Time's Next 100 or Time 100 Next list under the category by innovators. And her profile was written by Anthony Fauci. So we're out here saving lives. And Mm -hmm. that is amazing. So if you all do not know her name, look her up. Her name is Dr. Kismekia Corbett. All right. So, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but folks, we'll be brief on our next two, but I'm just saying, this is just amazing stuff. We'll have links on our website, but take a look. I mean, like I said, we are magic, y'all, and we just need to just learn more about the magic that we bring to the table. So, Yvette, who's your second then? All right, before I'm just going to make one statement, then I'm going to jump into my second then. (laughs) So, you know, we have our society, our culture, especially here in the United States, just is focused on, you know, the talking crazy heads on cable TV, just talking nonsense about a vaccine that most of the people in the United States don't want to take because they don't believe this thing exists. But no one's even standing up and saying, yo, we even have a Moderna vaccine because a black woman killed it. Exactly. Killed it so that we could have it, you know, in six months and not nine years. But y'all don't want to focus on that. But anyway, okay. All right. Go on. Go on. Okay. (laughs) My then, my then. So we all heard about the Tuskegee Airmen, right? We all know about the story Mm -hmm. and then, but what you all may not know, and this is just mind blowing, is that what you may not know, the 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 I guess the leader of the Tuskegee Airmen, his father was was breaking records in the U.S. Armed Forces for 50 years. Wow. Before, okay, so Benjamin O. Davis Sr. I've heard of him. Mm-hmm. Senior, not junior. I junior know. is attributed to the Tuskegee Airmen and all mm-hmm. those battles and feats, right? But his daddy laid laid the pathwork. I'm gonna tell you all about that. We don't hear about Benjamin O. Davis Sr., but y'all gonna learn about Benny, Benny, Benny today. Okay, so Benjamin was the first African American to become a general in any any mm-hmm. branch of the US military. That's inclusive of the regular army and all of the US armed forces. So y'all, I'm gonna pause a minute, let, let that seep in, let it seep in first, 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 first. That's so, major, that's major. Um, so um, Benny, I'm gonna call him Benny cause like he's, he's a friend of mine now. Um, <laughs> um, he was born in Washington DC on July 1st in 1877. He entered the military service on July 13th 1898 during the war with Spain and he would serve in the U.S. Armed Forces for the next 50 years. And when I tell you how they did him, you all. mm. So anyway, 50 years and he was named temporary first lieutenant of the all black unit during the Spanish-American War. He served as a corporal and then a squadron 
sergeant major. And then on February 2nd, 1901, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant of the cavalry and the regular army. But now check this out. So he was promoted to first lieutenant in 1905, March 30th, then to captain December 24th, Merry Christmas, uh, 1915, <laughs> then to major, but temporarily as a major, hold on, on August 5th, 1917, it gets better, temporarily promoted to lieutenant colonel on May 1st, on 1918, then they reverted him back to the permanent rank of captain. Wow. On October 14th, 1919. Okay, so so let's let's remember, let's go back. Peep this. Remember, he started out as a corporal, right? Temporary lieutenant. And then he went all the way up to captain in 1915, right? Then he went to major temporarily, then lieutenant major temporarily, and then they then they knocked him back to captain in 1919. So then in 1920, he was promoted to lieutenant colonel. And then to Colonel on February 18th in 1930. And then temporarily to Brigadier General on October 25th, 1940. Temporarily, right? So then he retired. Oh my gosh, did you see how they, oh my. He retired on July 31st, 1941. And then they recalled him back to active duty with the rank of Brigadier General the following day. Try to retire. Okay, so anyway. So throughout his service, Benny Davis, ben, Benjamin Davis Sr., um, he was a professor of military science at Tuskegee and, and Wilberforce Universities. He was a commander of the 369th Regiment of the New York National Guard, as well as a special assistant to the Secretary of Army. He was also the military um, attache of to, uh, to Monrovia. Uh, in 1912. When he returned to the U.S. in 1920, he was a professor of military science of tactics at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, and he served there until 1924 when he became instructor of the 372nd Infantry um, of the Ohio National Guard when he was stationed in Cleveland. So his service is just extraordinary. So when he became the special assistant to the commanding general um, in the communication zone, in 1944, he was stationed in Paris. And then in 1945, he was granted a period of detached service for the purposes of recuperation, right, and rehabilitation, because he's been they've been nuking him for years now, right? So in January 1940, 1946, he became the assistant to the inspector general of Washington, D.C. So after 50 years and finally retiring on July 14th, 1948, it was President Harry Truman, who oversaw his public ceremony. Wow. He died on November 26 in 1970, and his remains are interned at the Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. Um, and I told you about his son, uh, Lieutenant General Benjamin O. Davis Jr., he's U.S. Air Force retired, is the fourth African-American graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, that's West Point, as well as the nation's second African-American general officer after his papa. And so after graduating, you all know this in 1936, he was commissioned to the infantry in 1941. He was, for, he was part of the first group of African-Americans who was admitted to the Army Air Corps and to pilot training. And then 60 battles, combat missions later, he was promoted to colonel. And so Benjamin Sr. and Benjamin Jr. just tearing it up 
and making history. And you may have known, you may have heard about his son, but we're going to spend a little bit today and talk about his pop-up. So hats off to you, Benjamin Davis Sr. Mm, that's amazing. Totally amazing. And I, and I have heard of him, but that was a lot of great information. So that's great. I learned a lot more and want to look him up some more too. So my then person I've, I've talked about before, but I don't think I really went deep into to her and um, just a, a, amazing to me that uh, this was when she was a child and just the major strides that she made. So Ruby Bridges Hall, which many of you know as Ruby Bridges, is an American civil rights activist. And she was the first African-American child to desegregate the all-white William Franz Elementary School in Louisiana during the New Orleans school desegregation crisis on November 14, 1960. So she attended a segregated kindergarten. And in early 1960, she was one of six black children in New Orleans to pass the test that determined whether they could go to the all-white school. So Bridges and her mother were escorted to the school by four federal marshals during the first day that she attended the school. And in the following days that year, federal marshals continued to escort her. Her father was initially reluctant, but her mother felt strongly that the move was needed not only to give her own daughter a better education, but to take this step forward for all African-American children. So her mom finally convinced her father to let her go to the school. So think of that as a parent, you know, thinking that knowing the climate and, and thinking that this would be best for, for all children. I think that's such a hard decision for a parent to make and such a brave decision for a little girl to take on her own. So as soon as she entered the school, white parents pulled their own children out and all the teachers, but one refused to teach her. So the teacher whose name was Barbara Henry from Boston, Massachusetts, over a whole year, get this event, over a whole year taught her alone in the room as if she were teaching a whole class. Picture that. Yeah. I mean, so every morning as Ruby walked to school, one woman would threaten to poison her while another held up a black baby doll in a coffin. And because of this, the marshals dispatched by President Eisenhower allowed Bridges to eat only the food that she brought from home. Isn't that crazy? I mean, the, the, the hate, the level that people never hate. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so child psychiatrist, Robert Coles volunteered to provide counseling to her during her first year. Cause you can imagine as a little child going through that. Right. And he met with her weekly and he later wrote a children's book called the story of Ruby Bridges to acquaint other children with Bridges story. And he donated the royalties from the sale of that book to the Ruby Bridges foundation to provide money for other children, their educational needs, their school supplies for impoverished New Orleans school children. And the family suffered for their decision to send her to that school. His fa her father lost his job. The grocery store the family shopped at would no longer let them shop there. Her parents, who were sharecroppers, were turned off their land. But they did notice that many others in the community, both white and black, were supportive 
you know, they supported her and the family in a variety of ways. So they continued to send their children, you know, to France, to the school, despite the protests. And um, a neighbor provided her father with a new job and local people babysat, watched the house as protectors. So I don't want to say it's all bad because they, they did bring the community together in some respects, right, to help the family. And it wasn't until Bridges was an adult, get this, that she learned that the child psychiatrist sent her the clothes that she wore to school. A relative of the child psychiatrist sent her the clothes that she wore to school every day. So her family could never have afforded the dresses, socks, and shoes that were documented in the photographs, but that was sent to her by the child psychiatrist family, which she didn't learn until she was older. So now she's Ruby Bridges Hall. She still lives in New Orleans with her husband and their four sons. She is the chair of the Ruby Bridges Foundation, which she formed in 1999 to promote the values of tolerance, respect, and appreciation of all differences. And describing the mission of the group, she says, racism is a grown-up disease, and we must stop our, using our children to spread it. I'll say that again. Racism is a grown-up disease and we must stop using our children to spread it. She is the subject of a 1964 painting, The Problem We All Live With by Norman Rockwell. So I just think she is amazing, was an amazing child who grew up to be an amazing adult. And just being in the face of such hatred, she was able to persevere. So that's, that's my person. Yvette, I'll hand it over to you for your last now, and then I'll uh, do the same. <laughs> All right. Wow. I mean, that's, again, hard one to follow. Um, Ruby. Oh, man, my spirit animal. Okay. So <laughs> um, you all may not know this, but there is a Black woman who literally is now the Wolf of Wall Street. Sharon mm -hmm. Bowen, born in Chesapeake, Virginia. She holds a Bachelor of Arts with Distinction in Economics from the University of Virginia. She has an MBA from Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern, and she has her Juris Doctor from Northwestern's University, Prickster School of Law. So she has over 30 years of experience in business law as a partner and associate in several law firms. And she is considered one of America's top black lawyers and has a very long history with doing pro bono, educational, multicultural and civic involvement work. Her experience includes advising major global corporations and financial institutions on business, finance and securities transactions. And she has remained adamant about promoting diversity along the way. And I quote, why is diversity important? Think about it. Who was buying and driving the demand for commodities? Surely these consumers are not homogeneous. So how can we achieve real growth and economic opportunity without women or minorities at the table? Hmm. Hmm. Promoting diversity should not be treated as a nice addition to your substantive work, but as a essential part of it, end quote. So she's no stranger to make in history because in 2010, our president, Barack Obama, um, appointed her, handpicked as the first African-American commissioner of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, she was sworn in in 2014 and served until 2017. 
He also picked her to be the serve as the vice chair and acting chair of the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. But peep this, y'all. In December of 2021, Sharon Bowen was appointed chair of the board of the Intercontinental Exchange Corporation, also known as, aka, air quotes, the big board. Mm-hmm. This is the New York Stock Exchange, folks, and it's the world's largest, let me go back, the world's largest, largest stock exchange, deep-rooted with Wall Street fixture going back to 1792, and it right. has a, a combined capitalization of $26.6 trillion as of August of last year with over 2,400 listed companies and an average of 2.4 billion shares exchanged each day. Wow. Money, 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 money. Mm-hmm. Oh, when? Uh-uh. So, <laughs> <laughs> my, my, uh, my financial, my financial spirit animal, um, Sharon Bowen. Um, they may not know you, but we do know you now. Absolutely. Love you. Keep it going. She is the wolf, the queen, the leader of Wall Street, and she's a black woman killing it every single day. Wow. That's, that's, yeah, exactly. We're doing it. We're doing it, people. We are doing it out in these streets. Woo. Okay. Well, last but definitely not least, I'd like to spotlight Raphael Warnock. I think that should be a name that is familiar to many of you. He is an American pastor and politician serving as the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta since 2005. And for those who are like, oh, Ebenezer, I know that name, I know that name, I know that name. Well, Ebenezer Baptist Church was Martin Luther King Jr.'s former congregation. That was the church that he presided over. And he and Mr. Warnock is, or Reverend Warnock, is the fifth and youngest person to serve as Ebenezer's senior pastor since its founding. That is amazing. So he is the junior United States Senator from Georgia since 2021, he was elected last year. And he came into prominence in Georgia politics as a leader in the campaign to expand Medicaid in the state. So in March, 2014, Warnock led a sit-in at the Georgia State Capitol to press state legislators to accept the expansion of Medicaid offered by the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. He and other leaders were arrested during the protest, but he didn't care. He was active and actively campaigned for Georgia Democrats to increase outreach to low-income communities. He is the first African-American to represent Georgia in the Senate and the first black Democrat to be elected to the Senate by a former state of the Confederacy. I just think that, you know, we're talking about all these years and the fact that he's the first one in 2021. Doesn't that blow your mind? Mind blown, mushroom cloud. Yes, 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 mind blown. But just imagine the strength that's going to come out of there because we know who's going to be the next governor, right? Stacey Abrams. We, well, you know, you know this, you know this. So, so wait, folks, 
because it'll it is going to be a one it's going to be a, a two piece right exactly a one and a two, right um but anyway but yeah right. off amazing just so much history so much power so much so much self Leftness, right? So much thinking about others, about people they will may may never meet, never know, but they know what they're doing is going to help people have a better life, right? Exactly. And be better, be better, have better opportunities, right? And I, I always say, whatever doesn't come out in the wash will come out in the rinse. And folks, we in the rinse cycle. Absolutely. So what are y'all going to do? Right. You know, we can't rest on our loyals, you know, from people who have, you know, died, bled for what we can enjoy now. What are we going to leave for the people that come behind us? Totally. I totally, you know, Dorothy Height, you know, this was a quote from her, which which I love. She said, I want to be remembered as someone who used herself and anything she could touch to work for justice and freedom. I want to be remembered as one who tried. So to your point, Yvette, what are we going to do to try? What are we going to do to leave a legacy? We have a rich history, right, as African-Americans and continue to make strides today. We just talked about that. It's important for us to know where we came from, the shoulders on which we stand in order for us to be great leaders today, and most importantly, to leave a legacy for the future. So we've highlighted four. I mean, we could have talked for hours on so many others. And there are so many others we could have talked about. I know Yvette and I have been going back and forth on who we're going to pick and who we're going to talk about. But there's so many others out there. So we need to do our research. We'll have some links out there. But we want you and encourage you to find some of the other leaders then and now that have made and are making an impact. So Yvette, I'll let you close us out. Yes. Um, you know, you you we started this whole podcast um about, you know, what are you gonna do between the dash, right? Um, and so I've I've taken the the, the personal commitment and I, I I challenge each one of you to think about what do you want to leave as your legacy? not clothes, not shoes, not boxes of junk, right? But what type of legacy do you want to leave? For me, I'm living a life where I'm 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 focused on transforming lives. You know, I have people to inspire, I have kids to ignite. You know, I got love to create. I just got too much to do, you know, for the nonsense, you know, and I got you, walls to 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 melt and build bridges to build, right? But what are y'all gonna do? And 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 that's my passion every day when I wake up. That's my mission. You know, that's me. Who's you? Do the work. Dig deep. Find out who you are because whoever that is, that's your power. Because there's no one else like you. So use your power for good, folks. Think about it. We got so much history, but what I've learned, and I think we've all learned, one thing is that we all learned that we don't learn from history. So let's change that. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. What are you going to do? And that's our show. Any samples of media remain the property of their owners. Opinions expressed reflect the individual's point of view, not the Melon and Pearls podcast.
If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and Spotify. If there's a topic you would like for us to cover, let us know by visiting www.melaninpearls.com. Thanks for listening. And until next time, we encourage you to visualize your best self. Thank you.